And we have till when? Till 10.45. 10.45. Okay. I've got two questions up there on the board. What do you know about grief? What do you think you know? And what are you curious about? If you were to leave in 35 minutes with something, what do you want that to be? So let's do the first one first. What do you know about grief? And it can be an academic thing, it can be a personal thing, it can be something that you've read. Talk to me about what you know. Grief is fill in the blank. Yes? I think it's not a definition until you have felt it. Ah, so there's something about this that is an, an experience that it's kind of before and after you have a head knowledge and then afterwards it sits differently is what I hear you say. Yeah. Someone else? Everyone grieves differently. Pardon? Everyone grieves differently. Ah, grief is as unique as your thumbprint. Yeah. So what you do for grief may or may not look like what someone else does. Yes. Yeah. So the things that we look for as clinicians are around that parameters because it's not necessarily going to look the same. Are you healthy in that? Are you unhealthy in that? We have some pretty clear ideas what grieving healthy might look like and what grieving unhealthy might look like. But as far as having a prescribed, this is what you do, um, no, that's not, not how we understand that. I saw another hand. I thought, yes. I was just going to say it's an emotion as the result of loss, of any kind of loss. Okay. And it's that, that last part that he said, um, they're front row seats. <laughs> just for you, right. It's, it's a response, an emotional response. It can be an emotional, it can also be cognitive, it can be behavioral. There are things that you do as a grief reaction that mirror major, major depressive episodes. They mirror other conditions. And if you were to come to me and talk about what's going on in your life and you didn't have that grief experience, I would be looking to classify you in one diagnosis. The grief experience says, ah, of course you're doing that. But the other part that he said that is important, any kind of loss, any kind of loss. It can be a job loss, it can be divorce, it can be loss of an animal, it can be empty nest syndrome. Any kind of loss that says there once was something, either a person or a relationship with an entity, and that relationship is no longer there in a death because that parents, that person is no longer deaf, right? What else do you know? What else do you know about death? Yes, ma'am. It's a process, I think, and it leaves you a different person. Okay, so there's something about it's not an event. It's an ongoing thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's a process. And <laughs> you're not the same person. You're not. You will never be someone who hasn't experienced what you've experienced. 
and because that experience changes you. That's why grief is so layered. It's not just the emotional. It's not just the physical. It's just not just the cognitions, what I'm telling myself. You, <laughs> you have changed. Okay? One more before we shift? Yes? Absolutely. 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 There used to be, and I'll talk a little bit, like really little about history. There used to be the thought that there was a stage and that you would go through this phase and then you did the next one and you're exactly right. There was a man in one of the grief groups who would, in talking about what you probably have heard, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, Stages of Grief, people nod their heads. Um, he would say, in the morning I would wake up, you know the morning right before your alarm has gone off, and it's that twilight, you don't know if you're dreaming, you don't know if you're awake, and he would say to himself, ah, it's a school morning, I need to wake up, make sure the twins get up out of bed. And then there would be that second thought that would say, oh wait, the kids are dead, twins are dead, they died in a car accident, and then followed very quickly by the despair of that and the anger around the drunk driver, and then somehow the decision to say, I have to go to work, and that happened in less than two or three minutes, yes. So we now have an understanding, you're absolutely accurate, about it can, it can be this cyclical thing. Okay, let me shift to the second question. What are you curious about? If you've seen the agenda on the outside of this room, you knew grief was coming. There's a question that you've been wanting to have answered. I don't know that I'm gonna answer it. <laughs> but we'll talk about the question. What, what are you curious about grief? What do you wanna know? Do you ever get over it? Pardon? Do you ever get over it? Does it end? Yes. Now, if we were in my class, I would ask another student, <coughs> what's the assumption in that question? What does over it mean? Yes. It's bad, it's yes. See, you guys are excellent students. <laughs> <laughs> you could do this. It's bad. You do want to get <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's something, there's perhaps an expectation certainly a narrative embedded in our culture that this is something, we even have language around that. You should be over that, get over that, get beyond that, get back to work. We have all kinds of language around that, right? So the assumption is, one, that we should do that. I don't know, is that an accurate assumption? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> what do you think? I guess my question is, um, does it ever get easier? You know? ah, and the assumption is what? Someone else. Does it ever get easier? And the assumption behind that question is what? It should be, perhaps, I don't know if I can manage this, if it is this hard all the time. I think I can do it for a short time. I think I can do it for a couple of months, maybe a year. But man, if this, if this is my day to day, 
I don't know about that. Okay? Yeah. Yes? Are there, I'm wondering if there are, are any cultures that seem to handle grief in a healthy way? And a healthy way would be yeah. what? Well, that's, yeah, there you go. So, uh, but, so I'm curious, I'm curious about something in that question about like different cultures handle it differently. They have different expectations yes. for you if you're in that culture. And that affects how we grieve and sometimes. So I'm, I'm just wondering, is there any cultural group out there that seems to have within it a way that, that helps people, um, I don't know, make some, you, you make something good out of it or, or, or function better through it? Or maybe ask the question, what cultures really make it worse or something? So a lot of language in that question around meaning making, right? And around there are different ways that we do this, and some may be a better fit. So when you ask questions of cultures, you're asking, typically the culture has defined what is healthy. And sometimes we say there are some universals that show up in every culture. Social scientists aren't willing to give a lot of universal to different cultures. Most science, social scientists will say that how we act, what we do, the meaning making is embedded in our culture. Um, did anybody ever watch the series Lie to Me, the TV series? There's a real, oh, it was, it was wonderful. One of the people who consulted with that, Paul Ekman, I think, also worked with John Gottman around facial recognition. So he seems to think that there are some emotions that pop up in all of our cultures. Which emotions do you think are all across? So I'll give you some. Happy, mad, which others do you think show up across cultures? Sad. Sad. Anxious, something about fear. In fact, this isn't the couple class, but I'm going to dip into your class just a second. So I'm going to teach you this thing and, and don't ever do it again. So when you walk out the door this morning, <laughs> You will know that you can't ever do that. There's a left facial muscle right here that goes, yeah, it's that, yeah, right? Oh, good practice. <laughs> and the rolling of the eyes. So do both. Do the, yeah, right, and the rolling of the eyes. You, you've done that before. <laughs> Here's the thing. Don't ever, if you guys, I'm pretending you guys are partners, don't ever do that to her. Gottman's studies show Here's some gender-specific stuff around that. It shows disgust, shows disrespect. His research says if you, male, show her, female, that disrespect, it's closely tied to how many times you're going to get sick in the next six months. In this culture, the implication is women are assumed to be in relationships where we're disrespected. We're going to internalize that. However, you show him disrespect, one of the highest predictors of divorce. Men in our culture are socialized to say, I don't have to stay in relationships where I'm disrespected. So do that now. Get it out of your system. <laughs> and don't do it as you walk out the door. One of the most corrosive things that you can do in relationships. Okay, back on grief. Is it always the left side? 
Yes, 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 it is. I don't know why there's some. <laughs> yeah, that one kind of went up to your ear. <laughs> so if I see that, you guys are practicing, right? It's not about. <laughs> okay. Let me talk, just a second. Let me talk about what we just did as an example of you do this in grief. So we've been talking about something heavy, we've been talking about something serious, and we do something that's <coughs> lighthearted. That's a bit what you were talking about with the cyclical, with the process, you mentioned a process. Rarely can someone stay in that spot of despair and grief very long. I don't think we're designed physically to hold that. And so we do just what you as a class did. You can be present to that, and then you walk out of that. There is something that I'm going to say now, and I'm going to remind myself to say it at the end. Our brains are weird things, among other things. They don't do a period behind something. So as I've been talking, chances are you've been thinking about something that's sad, perhaps a loss, that you've had. And what those memories do is they just piggyback on each other. One just comes tumbling right after the next one. There is that loss, and then this loss, and then this loss. And you walk out of here physically heavy. And it's going to show up in the afternoon when you're tired. And it's going to show up in the evening when you're argumentative. So I want us to pay attention to as we leave being aware that in our bodies, in our skin, in our senses. When I do a grief group, I always end with be aware of where you're at. Um, as you drive, be aware of putting your seatbelt across. Uh, make sure that you're looking at the stop signs. You know, I, be aware. And so I'm giving my spiel. It's up at St. George's, and one of the um, parishioners is coming, walking back. And she has this unusual smile on her face. I thought, Okay, if you know me, you know that laughter, like we just did, is going to be a part of the class. What's going on? And she says, Dr. Samuels, <laughs> you have to start that spiel before we get into the car. I'm in the men's bathroom wondering, when did St. George's put men's urinals in the women's bathroom? <laughs> so, as you leave, <laughs> as you leave, be aware of being back in your body, feeling um, the carpet or your clothes or whatever, and I'll remind you again. We've got about 20 minutes left. I want to do a couple of things. I want to talk about where the history of grief has been and grief work, and then I want to talk about, because um, chances are, as a community of faith, you are with people who are grieving, or you certainly have an expectation of sitting with people who are grieving. So we're going to talk about a bit about that process. Would that be a good rest use of your time? I'm seeing some heads nod. Okay. So who thinks, what do you know about grief work? Who, who gave us that phrase in far as history? Any names come up? Starts with an F. Think couch. <laughs> yes, good old Freud. Yes. Uh, I think I can... Talba Abite, um, grief work. And the work, it was work. He understood that we were attached to something, typically parents, and that when a parent died or something died, 
his understanding and it shaped what we understand about grief for generations that this attachment my being in relationship with this whatever this a person or thing was that was energy and when that person dies that's energy that I need to reattach to something living and so that shaped for centuries not centuries for decades that shaped what we understand You've heard the phrase, I need to emotional detach. That's straight out of Freud. I need to take the energy, I need to take the investment, I need to detach. And typically someone thought then, in a directional system, present and future, I need to reattach. That worked for a while. And then there was someone, Linda Munn, here in the United States. There was a fire, um, it was a factory worker fire where women were in a sewing factory and somehow the doors were locked and they couldn't escape. Horrendous, horrendous fire. Um, one of the first times also the language around unions came at that same time. And what Lindemann saw in survivors and people who were family members of the women who had died, something's going on physically. They're acting like they're having a heart attack. Their breathing has changed. They're talking about stomach. So he's, he's aware, one of the first to document, actually this thing sits in our bodies. I behave in a way because of grief. Somehow it's connected to me physically, certainly emotionally. We already knew that with Freud. So now we're starting to have a sense this is more than I am sad because. This is I am vomiting. This is I am losing weight. This is I'm having migraines. There isn't any part of your body, of your sense of self, that is not affected by loss. And then we have Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, right? Who gave us what? What's the headline that she gave us? I'll start you. Five Five stages of grief. She was brilliant. There's still YouTube videos of her. I highly recommend that you go watch her work. You will watch and see someone who is compassionate, someone who is fully present to her patience. That's what I want you to hear. It never was about the family members. And somehow our culture Okay, a couple of generations ago, said, ah, what she's talking about the person dying, now I'm going to apply that to the person grieving. No! <laughs> Here's the one thing, if you didn't know before, you know now. When someone tells you, oh, well, as a grieving person, you need to do this, you get to say, you know what? Not true. <laughs> I know that now. And we tend to say all of those five stages, right? Who remembers what they were? Denial. Denial. See, we know them. Denial. Bargaining. Bargaining was in there. What else? Anger, Anger was in there. And what was, what was? Acceptance. This is what she wanted you to understand. There were some things that you do before acceptance. We weight them similarly. She didn't. She said, we do a lot of different things, but acceptance is the thing that you want. 
And then we take that and we put that on the grieving person. It's not about that. We did because she was so prevalent. And at that point, you have a lot of people writing about that. Right about that same time, 1960s, 1970s, you have hospices develop. You have Dame Sanders, I think, in London developing the first hospice. So the first time in our culture, you have death and dying starting to become its own field. But one of the interesting things about that, if you, if you go to most conferences, MFT conferences, LPC conferences, <laughs> a side story. People choose professions for a whole lot of reasons, right? There's a TV show years and years and years ago about a psychologist with a police department. I don't remember the show and I don't remember the name of the show, but she wore really cool clothes. She had on boots and she had on a long skirt and her hair was long and wavy and I thought, I don't know what she does, but I want to dress like that. <laughs> if you go to LPC conferences, if you go to counselor conferences, we all look like we're kind of out of the 70s and we still have the original tie-dye hippies and I guarantee you 90% of the shoes will be Birkenstocks. <laughs> Those are my peeps, right? If you go to a death and dying conference, you have physicians and now you've got guys in suits, or women in suits. So the death and dying field has always been this inter intersection between physicians and psychiatrists and social workers and chaplains. And so rather than having from the very beginning this sense of silo, it has always been about all of these different professions saying, let me add my piece as a physician, let me add my piece what I know about the, the, about the body. As a chaplain, let me add my piece about what I know about meaning making. As a social worker, let me add my piece about what I know about systems in this. So, then you have a couple of theorists who are saying, okay, maybe it's not stages, maybe there's tasks. Right? Maybe there are things that we have to do at certain stages. And that was popular for several years. Think of a task. What might be a task around grieving? What, what do you think you might have to do? Journal, write. I heard a couple. Write. Write? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things that you get to know about stage theory, there's a love-hate relationship with stage theory. One is it gives you very clear definitions around what it is that you're doing. So you get to identify, ah, these are the things that I do, ergo, I don't think you say ergo, <laughs> then, then I must be in this phase. That gives you identification. It goes, ah, okay, this is what I'm about. Then the next task, Okay, here's the stuff I'm doing. It must mean, you talked about when is this going to be over. There's a bit of, there's this progression. At some point, I'm going to be doing some different things. It must mean. Well, we don't think tasks anymore. Because of what you said in the back, it can be over and over again. So, fast forward to the newest Thing. The newest, brightest, hot off the press is about 10 years old. Uh, a colleagues out of the Netherlands have this idea, and this is what they thought. 
they looked at all of the research, and there's, there's a fair amount of research, and they said, you know, all of the research has this linear way of looking at it, and it's all going back to Freud. I am either detaching or I'm doing something with this relationship, and I'm picking up that energy or I'm reinvesting, but it's all about the loss. And they said, that's not actually what happens, is it? There are times when I live, it's called orientation, loss orientation. So an example of loss orientation is, might be what? I'm setting the place for dinner and I set two places instead of one. A loss orientation might be getting mail and I have to write the electro company and say, that person isn't here. A loss orientation might be, I'm not registering that child for school. One of the other things they did about that was to recognize that's a stress. I don't think of that and think, oh boy, right? I think of that and my reaction to that is one of stress. And so they were one of the first groups to say, remember this thing about co um, collaboration with other disciplines. They looked at all of the research around stress and there's a huge amount of research and said, we're going to bring that in to how we understand grief. There's a stress reaction when I think about that loss orientation, right? But because we can't live in that 24-7, what's the other thing that I'm doing? I'm thinking about work. I'm getting ready. I'm thinking about vacations. I'm thinking about uh, maybe downsizing and moving to a different house. I'm thinking about selling the 9-11. I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about, uh, that was a nod to my husband. <laughs> if he were to die, I am not keeping that card. <laughs> um, there's a whole other story behind that, but I won't go into that. But, so it's the, it's the restoration orientation. And again, it has a bit of a stress to it. And here's, the, here's perhaps the most unique part. This squiggly line, it's actually oscillation gets back to what you were saying in the back one of the things that we are to do you talked about healthy this would be an indicator of health I'm moving back and forth they are the first to say living in this restoration orientation isn't a denial which is what would have been said previous right Oh, you're in denial. You're not facing that. You're not thinking about this 24-7. And they say, actually, <laughs> that's the healthiest part. Doing a bit of this to the sense that you can hold that in a healthy way. Doing a bit of this. Coming back over here and doing a bit of this. Does it ever end? No. How you do that oscillation changes. You're driving to church this morning. 
I don't know where you came from, but if you had to be on the interstate, chances are you saw some kind of exit signs or markers that said, is, it, is this Concord Road? Exit, is that the um, Concord Road exit? And chances are there are a couple of ones we come up from Franklin, so what's one before Concord? Um, Moors, some of those. So some of those you pay attention to and some you don't. And this is what living with grief will be like. Sometimes you're gonna pay attention to those signs and sometimes you're not. Are those signs always gonna be there? Yeah, the signs are always gonna be there. What's going to make a difference in, are they in neon bright lights, are gonna be two things. It's gonna be around developmental milestones for you, and it's going to be around, chances are it's gonna be around anniversary dates. So let me talk about developmental milestones. Because grief affects who I am, take as a married person where my husband to die I am now a widow. It's what our culture has given the name. I am someone who is now single, I, whatever that definition is. But it starts with I, doesn't it? I am. A child dies. I am a mother. I am a parent whose child has, has died. It starts with I. Grief changes you at your core of how you make meaning of yourself. So developmental milestones are before and after for sense of self. <coughs> Typically this is around kids. Think of a girl. I'll walk through some developmental milestones and a child whose parent has died. There's a before and period. There's a before and after after she has her period. She gets to integrate that loss of her parent as someone who now has had her period. Next developmental milestone might be the prom, might be graduation, might be, you can see where that might go. So you got to expect, you get to pay attention to, you get to know that around developmental milestones for your friends who are grieving, chances are, it's going to come up again because they are now someone who is who are different, right? And the other part about that is around anniversaries. Getting to what you talked about, the meaning making. Anniversaries are all about important meaning making, right? That's, <laughs> that's the main um, definition of an anniversary, something that means something. So what do you do different? How do you incorporate that anniversary? What do you do now? And I love this because again, this is from another field other than strictly our silo thinking, out of the field of positive psychology, specifically appreciative inquiry. We understand that awe, A-W-E, is the strongest motivator for change. And pulling something from the past into the future. So in grief groups or grief counseling, it's what worked around that anniversary. When you think about that, when you think about the Christmas, when you think about the birthday, what worked about that? What are you drawn back to? 
how can you do something similar that speaks of that value currently? I'm aware of time. Let's recap what we've talked about and what you heard me say and what you walk out here with. We talked a bit about what you think you know about grief and you guys know a lot. Chances are you know a lot because you've experienced that. As you said, it's a before and after. What I want to encourage you to do is to think in terms of what you can do to be present. And I want to read um, a blessing for you that I think captures the what to do in a way that is pretty interesting. She is an author and her name is Jan Richardson. Some of you might be familiar with her as an author. She's written, she's at this incredible intersection. She's a brilliant artist. Um, she's also an author. Two years ago, three years ago, her husband of four years died recently, died suddenly. And her book of Cure for Sorrow comes out of that experience. And this is one of the blessings that is in this book. The blessing you should not tell me. Do not tell me there will be a blessing in the breaking that it will ever be a grace to walk into this life so altered, this world so without. Do not tell me of the blessing that will come in the absence. Do not tell me what does not kill me will make me strong, or that God will not send me more than I can bear. Do not tell me. This will make me more compassionate, more loving, more holy. Do not tell me this will make me more grateful for what I had. Do not tell me I was lucky. Do not tell me there will even be a blessing. Give me instead the blessing of breathing with me. Give me instead the blessing of sitting with me when you cannot think of what to say. Give me instead the blessing of asking about him, at how we met, or what I loved most about the life we have shared. Ask for a story, or tell me one, because a story is finally the only place on earth he now lives. If you could know what grace lives in such a blessing, you would never cease to offer it. If you could glimpse the solace and the sweetness that abide there, you would never wonder if there was a blessing you could give that would be better than this, the blessing of your own heart opened and breathing with mine. I'm here for a couple of minutes after class if you want to come up and talk. But let me also close us in prayer. <clears throat> Holy One, we are in your presence because you call us. You call us mother and father and sister and brother, and sometimes you call us friend.
We are in your presence because you have called us. And so we show up. We show up lonely and hurt and grieving and mad. And in your presence, Holy One, you change us. Change us now. Help us to be the one you call friend. Help us to be that friend to the one next to us who is lonely and hurting and grieving and mad. Holy One, we are in your presence because you call us. And we are grateful to be in your presence. And all God's people say, Amen. 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 Uh,